Um, we are beginning a new sermon series, as Colin said. So over the next 12 weeks, we are going to be talking about um, the biblical characters. So we're going to talk about 12, uh, I call it the Big 12. Um, so some of you hear that and you get excited about basketball, um, but others of us hear it and don't have a clue. So we're going to be talking about uh, just 12 uh, prominent characters that we see in the Old Testament. Um, and, and as anything, when we go into a sermon series, we always want to answer the question, why, right? Why? Obviously, well, we pray through these things. Things we ask the Lord, um, but really, there's there's two big reasons that we are going through um, this Old Testament character study. Um, and so, the first reason is that we're going through this uh, series to understand our family heritage and their example, right? To understand our family heritage and their example, both positive and negative. Um, so, just show of hands, has anybody heard or even got on Ancestry.com? Anybody ever heard of that? So, uh, Ancestry.com is basically this place where you can go and you can kind of trace your family lineage. And so my uncle is a history buff. He taught history for like 30 years, high school, uh, U.S. history. And so he's got on Ancestry.com for our family and like loves it. He like geeks out on it. And so he's like discovered all these things. We came over from Sweden and we have an edict from the king of Sweden allowing us to come and settled in Nebraska. And so we get a, like I get to learn all these cool facts about my family and kind of where we came from and kind of why we maybe look the way that we do and act maybe the way that we do. You know, you learn some stuff about about that. And I, I remember, too, you know, when you're young, when you're young, you kind of see your mom and dad as like mom and dad. You know, like that's kind of that encompasses them is that they're your mom and they're your dad. And that's kind of all they are. And then when you kind of grow up a little bit, you're like, oh, they had a life before me. You know, like they're actual people. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but I remember I remember, like, I remember first, you know, you, you get out of high school and you kind of start realizing that and first talking with my mom and dad and actually getting to know them, not just as mom and dad, but actually as people, you know, getting to hear their stories, getting to hear things that they probably wouldn't have sh- shared with me when I was in high school, you know, but they, they waited till I was older to start sharing with me. And I remember hearing their stories and getting to learn more about me, more about who I am because I learned more about who they are. Because I saw both the, their negative examples, I saw ways in which they messed up, and then I also saw ways in which they got it right. You know, they really did a good job. And so what we're doing today is that we want to do this because we want to understand our family. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, um, he's warning this Gentile church, right? We, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, they're messed up, right? They are, they're full of sin, they're rebellious, all these things. And Paul is warning them in, in 1 Corinthians 10, right? He's, he's telling them, take heed, watch out, you're sinning. And how does he warn them, right? He warns them by saying, look at your forefathers, look at your family, look at Israel, right? It's kind of a, a mind-boggling thing, like these Gentiles, for him to be warning these Gentiles, Christians of Jewish history. But he says, when we're in Christ... When you've been bound together by Christ in faith, that the Old Testament is your family story. That we are, there's one people of God unified throughout both Testaments because of His grace. And when we're in Jesus, the Old Testament isn't just some ancient story, it has to deal with these people that, you know, were 2,000 to 4,000 even longer ago. But, but instead, we learn that it's very intimate, it's very personal, it's a story about who we are about how we came to be where we're at. Um, And so 1 Corinthians 10.6, and then also 11 through 12, Paul says this. He says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. 
and then in 11 through 12. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So Paul's talking to these Gentile Corinthian Christians, and he's telling them, look back at Israel. Remember, when they were following Moses in the desert, remember how rebellious they were. Remember, they didn't submit to Moses. Instead, they didn't trust God, but instead they were rebellious. They were constantly causing friction, constantly trying to usurp Moses' rule and reign and, and his, his leadership that he had appointed. He says, learn from that. Look at that example and learn from it. And we see this all throughout. We see this, I mean, Jesus does this. He, he says, look at David. He says, look at how David adhered to the Sabbath. You see how he took grains? He says, and, and Jesus upholds that view of the Sabbath. Um, Paul, when Paul talks about uh, Abraham in, in Romans chapter 4, he talks about uh, Abraham as this example of faith. He says, look at the example of faithfulness that Abraham has. And so we see it again and again. The scripture calls us, it calls us to look at the at both the positive examples and also the negative examples. So we are to we're to learn um, from our, our family history. Hebrews eleven is all about that um, the the hall of fame of faith. So we want to learn about our family heritage. We want to learn from their examples, both positive and negative. Um, the second reason we're doing this, though, and the bigger reason, the more the more substantial reason, is that we're going through the series that we might better understand and see Jesus. Right, um, because the point of the scriptures and the, the point of this world isn't about us. Uh, oftentimes, we have a very me-centered perspective of the Bible or of this world. And the point of the scriptures and the point of of this world is to orbit around Christ. Is that He is the center? Everything is meant to to bring Him glory. And so, if we don't understand that ultimately, first and foremost, that these characters are to point us to Jesus, then we will misuse and abuse them. And so, what I mean is, oftentimes. We've been raised up in Sunday school or we've heard stories and it goes along like this. You know, this person, this character, Abraham or David or Moses, they did these things. And to be a good Christian, that you need to do the things that they did. You need to be courageous. You need to be bold. You need to do X, Y, and Z. And if you do those things, then your life will be good and you will be a good Christian. Right? And what that creates is that is a gospel of moralism, not a gospel of grace. And so let me let me provide a very practical example, probably the the most practical that we hear, right? Often the story of David and Goliath, right? So David is this young shepherd boy, and he comes to slay Goliath, right? And nobody in Israel is going to kill Goliath. Goliath standing there, he's making a he's making a mockery of Israel, taunting them, saying, "Is there no one that will fight for you?" David comes and says, well, no one, you know, no one stand up for the living God. Will no one come and, and kill this uncircumcised Philistine? And so David steps up and he, and he grabs stones and he comes and he kills Goliath, right? This monstering giant that's huge. He kills Goliath, slays him with one stone, cuts his head off, and, and so goes the message that you need to be like David, right? Listen, you need to be like David. There are these giants in your life, debt. You know, a broken relationship, difficult work, you know, whatever the giant is. There are these just giants that are just towering in your life. And you just need to be like David. If you would just grab the stone and be courageous and throw it, then you could kill the giant in your life. You know what happens when that's the whole point, when that is the main point of the message? Brings a lot of discouragement and frustration. Because what happens when you step up to depression you step up to anxiety, you step up to addiction, and you throw one stone. Heck, you throw a five, and you're still struggling with it, and it's still there. Then guilt, shame, frustration, 
Am I being deceived? Is God not really here? Now, don't get me wrong. There's an example to be learned from David, right? David's courage is exemplary. We are to learn from that. His trust in the Lord is exemplary. But just because God worked through David like that doesn't mean that he's going to work the exact same way in your life. We are different. What we instead need to see and what that story is for us to understand is that we, instead of being like David, are like the Israelites, standing on the sideline looking at Jesus, the one who steps up to the battlefield and defeats the giants that none of us could ever face. Sin, death, hell, the ones that most torment us, the ones that we can never shake. Jesus steps up there with full confidence, full assurance, and he slays the giants through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And so what rescues and saves us is not trying to muster up more courage and more strength, but instead trusting the one who is fully courageous and fully trustworthy and fully faithful, who can accomplish God's will and accomplish God's purposes without batting an eyelash. And it is by trusting in him that he comes and he begins to fix our life. He begins to save us rather than us trying to save ourselves. And so... Man, I'm gonna, we're gonna harp on those. We're gonna talk about those because it, it's ingrained in us. It's ingrained to hear a story and immediately to start thinking of these principles and only that. And we need to see that each of these characters that we're talking about, each of these men is meant to demonstrate who Christ is in a fuller, deeper, more profound way that we might see who our Savior is and who we really worship. So saying that with those two things, that we are to learn from their example, both positive and negative, and that the point is that we would see and worship Jesus, let's dive into our first character. And so we today are going to talk about Adam. Um, and so we're going to talk about three things with Adam. We're going to learn Adam's story. We're going to talk about Adam's example. And then we're going to look at Christ through Adam. Christ through Adam. So Adam's story, his example, and then Christ through Adam. So first... Adam's story, um, as Colin has you guys reading in Genesis 1 through 11, Adam's story is found in both in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 through 3. There's pieces of it in 4 and 5, but Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and 3 are complementary accounts. Genesis 1 is giving an, a broad overview. It talks about God creating both man and woman, and Genesis 2 gets very specific and talks about him creating Adam specifically and then forming woman. So the story begins with nothingness there's darkness the spirit is hovering over and god in that moment speaks he creates he says let everything that is come into existence and and each day god begins to create and form what he desires and what he intends and each day he says it is good on the sixth day god creates someone something very unique he comes in and Different than all of the rest of creation, God gets his hands dirty. He comes in and he scoops up the dust of the ground and he forms man, the living being. He breathes into his nostrils and makes him come to life. Adam opens his eyes. It's the first time that he's ever seen anything. Like a blind man receiving sight, he sees color for the first time. He takes a breath. He begins to smell and begins to hear things that he'd never seen, smelt, or heard before. He looks around, he can feel warmth on his skin. God is there. And for the next several days, Adam begins to learn what it means to communicate, what it means to, to listen, what it means to move his body. God, like a parent, begins to teach Adam how to operate 
The first thing in the, in the very first day that, that God has Adam to do is, is he has him to go and to begin to name the animals. Is that Adam is there and God takes him through and begins to look and examine and understand each one of the animals and how they operate and what they're like and he begins to name them. It's in this that Adam begins to understand who he is a little bit more. That God has created Adam in his own image. That Adam is to be a viceroy or a steward of his creation. That God is in fact delegating part of his authority to Adam. God created the animals and Adam is now naming the animals. But as Adam names the animals, as he sees all of the created work that God intended, as God takes him through the garden and he examines all the beauty and all the food that he had been given, he discovers that there was no one suited for him. That there wasn't a helper with him that was suitable to help him do the work that God had intended for him. Before God created Eve, before God creates his helper, God warns Adam. He tells him, he takes him to the garden, he says, all of this you may eat. Everything that you see for your eye, you may eat except for one thing, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is in the center of the garden. You may not eat of that. God creates this that we might choose, that Adam might choose to obey and to love God simply because he's God, simply because he's worthy of our love and our trust. Adam hears and receives that. God then tells Adam to to go to sleep, that he will create a helper suited for him. Adam sleeps and God takes a rib out, closes the place, and creates woman, meaning out of man. Adam wakes up, and the first love song is, is broken forth. As he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, you shall be called woman, for you were taken out of man. Adam's never seen someone so beautiful in his life. The two of them spend the remainder of their time learning what it means to be in a relationship with one another, what it means to be in a relationship with God how to take care of God's creation that he's given to them, how to steward and be a good gardener, how to watch out and ensure that the animals flourish. It's one day that Eve is walking along, going towards the center of the garden that she encounters a serpent. This isn't the most likely the first time, but the serpent begins to ask her, did God say that you shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden? She says, no, that's not what God said. God said that we cannot eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that we shouldn't touch of it. For the day in which we touch of it, we will surely die. A serpent turns to Eve and says, you will not surely die, but instead you will, you will gain knowledge. You will become more like God in the day you eat of it. Eve, looking at the fruit, takes it, sees that it is, it's good to the eyes. It looks like it's, it's good for food. It looks, in fact, very delicious. And she saw that it was desirable to make her wise. The serpent had put the lie in her mind that she needed the knowledge of evil to be more like God, that she needed to be more competent and more mature to make it in the world, and that that would come through understanding what evil was really like. Adam, in this conversation, was standing right next to her, and instead of actively choosing to step in, passively watches as the thing unfolds. Eve seeing this and, and desiring and thinking that it will make her more like God takes, bites, and eats of it. Adam watches on. Nothing changes. Eve seems to be okay, seems to be good. She then takes the fruit and passes it to Adam. He takes a bite. As he bites, though, he feels something change within him. 
he realizes that there's a brokenness, that there's a death that has occurred. Now instantly he sees his eyes are opened, and for the first time he notices Eve's nakedness. She in turn has a look of shame and guilt on her face as she realizes Adam's nakedness. They realize that they're no longer safe places for each other to be around, and they run and they hide, they sew together thick leaves to cover their nakedness. It's in this moment that God begins to walk through the midst of the garden, calling out to them, where are you? Where are you? Adam, where are you? Adam comes forth. God says, why were you hiding? Adam says, we were hiding because we were afraid. God says, have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to? First thing that Adam does is he says, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. God looks at the woman, and the woman says, that the serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. God then turns and looks at the serpent, and he, he subsequently curses the serpent. He says, on, on your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. You will bruise her seed's heel, but he will crush your head. So the woman, he turns and he says, because you've done this, you will have pain in childbirth. And your desire will be against your husband and his desire, and he will, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he turns and he says that his fruitfulness, that since he's come from the ground to the ground, he will return. He's dust into the dust. He will, he will return. And that he will cause that the, the fruit of his hands, the labor of his hands will become fruitless. It will bear thorns and it will bear thistles. Creation is cursed because of it. After the curse, Adam and Eve are then separated. Before they're sent out, God takes their fig leaves off and he pursues them. He instead goes and he, and he kills an animal and he takes the skin from an animal, the first atonement for sin, and he wraps them in garments to clothe them. They are then sent out of the Garden of Eden, kicked out with a, a cherubim sent to guard with a flaming sword to keep them from returning. Life is forever changed for Adam and Eve, knowing the bliss of paradise and seeing its fall and destruction. Adam's life is spent out in the harsh wilderness trying to tame it. The rest of Adam sees as he sees Cain and Abel, his two sons. He witnesses Cain kill Abel. At 120, Adam gives birth to, well, Eve, with Adam's help, gives birth to a son named Seth after his own likeness. Adam lives to a ripe age of 930 before he too returns to the dust that he was taken from. This is Adam's story. So we've heard a little bit of Adam's story. I want us to talk now um, about Adam's example. What are some things that we learn about Adam's example um, first, I want to start with some positive things. What, what's, what's something positive we learn from Adam that we, can, uh, that we are made to emulate? Um, the first thing is we learn that Adam was created for community. Right? Adam was created for community. When God took Adam to all the animals, he realized that, listen, the dog wasn't made for him. Although dogs are great companions, he knew that he needed something more than a dog or a cat. You know? And so he had a longing in him for companionship, for a helper, there. And so what we see is that when God creates Eve, he doesn't just create marriage in that instant, although that is one of the primary things he does, but he creates community when he creates Eve. 
And he says it is not good for man to be alone. And so what this means for us is it means that we need community. We need community. Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says this. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We get distracted by life. Right? Life is busy. All of us, we have all kinds of different things going on. Work, family, sports priorities. All of us have a, a whole mix of different things that are crushing for our time. You know, we have busy schedules, tough bosses. We get home and life seems to just throw us curveball after curveball. And sometimes it seems just easier to sit back and watch Netflix or to rent a red box than to get into community. But what we realize from this is that when we isolate ourselves from community, that it's, it's not good, that it's actually to our detriment, that it, it erodes our humanity. It erodes our humanity, that God created us in his image. God is in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he made us to be fully human when we interact with others. Now, the Bible doesn't have any, uh, um, any lies about how difficult community is. Community is hard, right? We all have different kinds of opinions, right? About politics, about health, about sports, about we have uh, relationships. All of us are very different. And when we come into community, when we come into a life group, into relationships, we bring all of our different opinions and perspectives to bear. But actually, that's one of the most beautiful things. Because of the differences, we get to learn more of who we are and we get to see more of who Christ is. One of the reasons that God created community is that it's actually to protect ourselves from ourselves. The Bible teaches that we are sinners, that we struggle with sin, and that sin isn't just an action that we do, but instead it's a heart that we have. And so sin laces itself through in every area of our life. It's not like we can just compartmentalize it. We can just say, well, this area is sinful, but you know, the rest of my life isn't too bad. Sin creeps itself into even our motives for why we do what we do. And as we come into community, it's where people help protect us from ourselves. You see, it's very easy for us to deceive ourselves that we're doing pretty good or that we're just fine. We get on our own and we think, well, this isn't that bad. And we find examples that we want to compare ourselves to. Well, such and such, there, you know, like I do better than this. Or, well, they do that and I'm not as bad as that. And we start to find ways to justify our sin, to justify our mistakes, to justify all these things when God would instead rather have us to confess it to be healed from it, to walk it out. In community, we do the hard work, but the necessary work of calling each other out in love, of bearing with each other. Isn't that our deepest needs? Our deepest needs are to be known and loved. We desperately want someone and and people to know us, to know who we really are. Not just to know a facade, not to know who just we put up on the surface, but to know our heart, to know our desires, to know our longings. And we want somebody to love us, to know who we are and to choose to actively pursue us. We desperately want those things, but we're scared of them. Because to be known and unloved is one of our deepest fears. That people would know us and choose not to love us, we fear deeply. But if we if we don't allow ourselves to be known in community, then we, we never risk the opportunity of being loved. We never have the option. Being in community, being with one another, it's the way that God uses to know 
for us to know each other and to love us. He knows God demonstrates his love for us through his people, through his people. And so we desperately need to be with one another. We need it for our humanity. So that's one of the things that we we see is that it encourages us, it strengthens us as we choose to to show grace and love to one another. Um, Now, what's a negative example that we see from Adam? Um, One of the negative examples we see is that when Adam sinned, right, when Eve passed the fruit to Adam, he ate, the first thing that Adam did was run and hide. The first thing that he did is he ran from God's presence rather than to God's presence. John uh, 3, verse 20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And see, this is often what we do, is that we sin, and what we want to do is we want to cover ourselves up. We want to run from God, and we want to lavish ourselves in the dark because we're ashamed, because we're afraid that somebody will know, that either God will know or others will know, and they will reject us, or because we don't understand that it's truly evil. We don't really think it's sin. Instead, we justify it and say that it's not that bad. One of the things we learned from Adam's account is he had no idea exactly how much sin would cost him. And don't you see that that's true? We go into sin and we think that it's light. We think that it's not a big deal. And then we wake up sometime and we realize, how in the world am I here? How did, how did this bring me here? I was just looking at an image and now I'm addicted. I just thought I'd try pain meds and now I'm here. You know... There's all kinds of different ways that sin deceives us and it lies to us. And all of a sudden we're ten steps down a path that we didn't even see we were walking in. And it starts because we don't think sin's that bad. When instead if we acknowledge that sin is something that will destroy us and following God's commands is what brings us life. Not because we understand everything. Right? God didn't explain this long litany to Adam and say, well, let me explain to you. Here's all the reasons why. You shouldn't eat it because of this and because of this. He said, trust me, I love you. And oftentimes we say, God, but I don't understand. I'm not going to obey until I get everything instead of trusting him. And then finding ourselves down a path that leads to destruction. What instead we need to do is instead of running from God, trying to cover ourselves, is that we run to God exposing our sin. As Christians, our identity is no longer in our performance. right? Our identity is no longer in our ability to be good because we're not trusting in our goodness. I'm not trusting in my moral ability because that's a really, that's a really faulty trust. It's a, that's a roller coaster ride because some days you're going to be really disciplined and some days you're not. And if you trust in yourself, your identity is going to constantly be in fluctuation. It's going to constantly be up and down, and you're going to either you're going to either be beating yourself up because of your failure and, and shame and guilt, afraid to be with other people, running away from God, or you're going to stand in pride, talking and thinking, I fixed myself. Look at my hard work. Look at my discipline. Look at how strong I am because I've done this. And you will begin to preach a gospel to other people that is not the gospel of Jesus. You'll begin to communicate to other people because we do what we think saves us is what we begin to help other people to be saved by. And so if we think that our hard work and our discipline, our moral effort is what saves us, then we will, in all the relationships we're around, we'll begin to communicate that what you really need to do to save yourself is not trust in Jesus, but you need to work harder. You need to be more disciplined. You need to have, you know, you need to be stronger rather than you need to see Jesus in a more fuller way and you need to trust yourself wholly and fully. You need to yield to him. And let him take you over. Let him guide you and control your life. You need to give your lordship up and you need to trust in his lordship. 
It is only when we turn to God and expose our sin that we take away one of its primary powers, shame and fear. We walk it into light and we say that grace and love are far better motivators than fear and guilt. Ephesians 5, 11 through 14, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Man, there are things that we are hiding in secret right now that God wants to turn and use them as a testimony. God wants to use what you're struggling with. Tell somebody else what, with what they're struggling with. If only you would give it to him. If only we would surrender it. If only we'd say, listen, my identity is no longer in my moral ability. I don't care how bad it looks. I'm going to confess it and I'm going to seek to walk through repentance of it. Because this is destroying me. And I see that like Adam, it will lead me down a path to where it will affect my future generations to come. It will affect the ones that I love the deepest and the most. And it will harm them. And so I'm going to do what it takes to confess it to repent of it, to walk it into light so that the Lord might use it for a testimony, that he might use it to free other people. Run to God. Confess it. Repent of it. Change the way that you think. Realize that what matters most in this life is not having that sin that you so long for. It's not having an identity based on something else in the world, but it's instead seeing that Jesus is what most satisfies you. Being being yoked to christ is what most will satisfy and give you the grace enjoyment in this life it is when this is the center of your souls when this is your center desire that everything begins to fall in place we run to god not away from him we expose our sin we don't hide it so we might be brought into freedom rather than bound in enslavement to sin so examples we've seen we need community and we can't run away from our sin and run away from god we have to Well, we do need to run away from our sin and run to God. So, um, and then the final thing I want to talk about is, uh, is Christ through Adam. Christ through Adam. So, we see Christ's example through Adam in in two ways. Um, the first one is that where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Where Adam breaks covenant, Jesus keeps covenant. Jesus comes on the scene to reverse the curse that Adam brought. And we see this. In 1 John 2, 15 through 16, John's talking about the temptations of the world. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What we see is that when we look at the temptations of Adam and Eve and the temptation of Jesus is they mirror each other perfectly. When you look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4, you see that Jesus, like Adam, was put into place, except where Adam was tempted in paradise, in Eden, Jesus was tempted in a forsaken desert. Adam saw the food and saw that it was good for, it was, it was good to eat, that it would sustain him, right? The lust of the flesh. He desired it for food, right? Eve sees it and, and desires it. Jesus, on the other hand, was tempted. Satan tempted him, being hungry, fasting for 40 days. He says, turn these stones into bread. But Jesus turns and says, my food is to do the Father's will. And Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. He says, instead, what will satisfy my soul is not taking something that is forbidden, not using my power to take, but instead 
following God's commands, obeying him, submitting myself to him is what truly satisfies my flesh. It's what truly quenches the deep thirst that I have. Next thing is we see that the, uh, uh, the desire of the, of the eyes. Um, Adam looks and it says that she saw that the fruit was desirous. She saw that it looked good. Right? Some of us see that. We see a, you know, a prime rib steak or we see you know, the best seafood and, and it, it's something that looks good to eat. And it, it's right, of course, it, it might be. But for her, this is forbidden. Jesus is, is tempted. Satan takes him up on the, on the temple mountain. He shows him the glory of the world. Imagine that. Imagine seeing the best the world has to offer. Jesus is tempted to have this. And this is, it was Jesus's, right? We know that, that ultimately he would inherit it. But what Satan is tempting him to do is he's tempting him to have it without the cross. He's saying, Jesus, bow down to me. And I'll give all this to you, except you don't have to go through any suffering. You don't have to go the hard route of obedience to God when you can just take it now. But instead, Jesus turns and he says, um, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so he says, what I worship is not the delights of this world. What my heart revolves and what I most long for isn't the best life now. But what I most long for is to worship and serve God in obedience because I know that his plan is better and that ultimately he will give everything that my heart ever longed for. Christians, do you know that that is, our greatest, that is one of the greatest hopes about the resurrection is that we can give our life away now because there's nothing we lose. There's nothing we lose from giving our life away now because we know that the resurrection has far more and far better than anything we could ever hope relationships we've lost, dreams that have faded away because we've been serving Christ, things that we've given away are never really lost. They're delayed so that we have something far better awaiting us in the kingdom to come. And we see that, that Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. And the last one is the pride of life. Eve saw the fruit and she saw that it was, it was able to make one wise. It was in that moment that she said, it's better that I am God she made a decision in her life that all of us often make. God, you don't really know my circumstances. You don't know what I'm facing. It's better if I just do it my way. My way is going to be more practical. My way is going to be more useful. My way is going to get it done. And so I'm going to do this because I need this to succeed in my life. I need this to, to be complete or mature. And Eve takes the fruit and sins. Satan takes Jesus up on the, on the temple and he says, throw yourself down, demonstrate your glory. Show yourself for who you really are. Show, show yourself that you are God. Do it now. And Jesus turns to Satan and says, you shall put the Lord your God to the test. And he, he succeeds where Adam fails. Ultimately, we find Jesus' success in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jimbo brought up it's a wine it's the wine press that area the Garden of Gethsemane was a wine press where things were squeezed out. Jesus in that moment at Garden of Gethsemane was squeezed out, and when tempted, when tempted, he said, "Not my will be done, but the Father's will be done." And so we trust not in our ability, but instead we trust in Jesus' ability that He was able to succeed in every temptation and every test. He passed. He didn't fail once. I was reading uh, Lewis, and one of the things that Lewis talks about, I think, is really, says the longer that you endure temptation, the more you know its strength. 
right? So when, when you go through something, say you're fasting or say you're trying to stop smoking or you're, you know, you're trying to beat, uh, an addiction to coffee or to sugar or whatever it is, right? There's, there's a time, there's a certain time frame that the longer you go through it, the harder it becomes until it finally kind of breaks, right? That, you know, like if you're fasting, you know, like after like three or four days, it's like it gets really difficult and there's kind of a breaking period, you know? Jesus never broke. He never, he never gave in. And so he felt the full weight, the full temptation that sin has to offer. But he never gave in to any of it. And because of that, he's able to reverse the curse that Adam brought. He's able to succeed where Adam failed. And so we look to him. The second thing that we see um, that Adam shows us that we see Christ through Adam is that we are either in Adam or we're in Christ. Paul in Romans 5 talks about this. He says in Romans 5, 17 through 19, he says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So what this basically means is that we are either in Adam or we're in Christ. We're either on Adam's team or we're on Jesus' team. There's no in-between. And this idea is one of, it's called a federal head, right? This, this idea is kind of foreign, but there are a couple of examples that we have in our culture. So our government, we don't really get a, sometimes we get to vote for our, our government, but each of us as individuals don't get to choose our elected officials. We don't each have the power and say, I personally am going to pick this person. They're going to be it, right? We have to submit to the majority votes. And because of that, that means that their choices affect us, right? They choose certain policies. They vote on certain things and that gets dictated to us. We don't necessarily have a say about that as much as we try to vote for them. Maybe a more practical example, our parents, right? We didn't choose our parents. It's not like we, you know, looked down and said, I want these parents. Our parents were chosen for us. And our parents' choices dramatically affect us. Maybe a, a, a better one is that of lawyers, right? If you've ever committed a crime, if you've had to go and you've had to have a lawyer that stands, then everything that your case, your entire case is pleaded by this lawyer, by this person. They are your head. Their, their ability or inability affects you drastically either you get locked up or you get set free if they're you know like hopefully if you're innocent but also based on their ability and so what the bible says here is it says that that adam and jesus are are federal heads that we're either in one or the other i think the clearest biblical example this is again david and goliath right david steps up and he says i'm going to fight for israel goliath steps up and he is fighting for the philistines and their victories their victory or loss affects the entire nation. So because David stepped up and defeated Goliath, that meant that all of Israel just won that battle. Because Goliath lost, that meant that all of Philistine lost the battle. It depended on who their head was. It depended on who they were underneath. And what the Bible teaches is that all of us descend from Adam. And because Adam sinned, because Adam failed, all of us have sinned in Adam that he is our federal head, and his his success or failure is our success or failure. And since he sinned, and since he failed, since he brought death, it is all of our death. It's all of our sin. It's all of our failure. Christ has come that we might be underneath him, that he might reverse what Adam has brought. And so we have the option now. We, we choose by faith 
to be yoked together under Jesus, that he might save us from the condemnation that Adam brought. We are either, and it's a clear line in the sand, because oftentimes we're, we're all in a journey, we're all in a, in a journey. We don't know who's going to become a Christian and who's not. But what's very clear is that there's going to be a day where we stand before God and that we are either under Adam's headship or we are under Christ's. And the question is, whose headship are you under? Have you chosen to submit yourself under the headship of Christ? Have you bound yourself together with him by faith, giving yourself wholly to him and ask him to come and to rescue you, to give you life? He died that you might live. Have you accepted that? Have you put your faith in that, believed in it, received it, been changed by it? For those of us that are, are Christians, who is it that you know the Lord would have you to share the gospel with? I mean, that, that's my that's my practical application of this, is that you have neighbors, family, family members, coworkers, they're either in Adam right now or they're in Christ. I mean, we don't know their heart, the Lord does. But what we're to do is we're to, we're to passionately share the gospel. Because sometimes we deceive ourselves and we act as if there's not really a hell, that people really aren't going to pay for their sin and that everything's going to be just fine for people that don't, re- re- that don't receive Christ. And the truth is that if people are in Adam, then they perish in Adam. And that they are separated from God because of Adam, because of their sin. But that's not the end of the story. God has given them a way through Christ to be joined to him. And we come being bearers of good news to share that. So as I close in prayer, I would just ask, are you praying for people? Are you praying for people in your family? Do you have a list that you're praying diligently for people to be saved? Because oftentimes we talk and we talk about people that are sick. We talk about people who are going through tough situations, and we should be praying for that. But it saddens my heart that I often don't hear people praying for salvation, that we aren't burdened for those that don't know Christ, because everything else is secondary. If people know the Lord, thank, it's all good. I mean, if people know Jesus, it's all good. It all is good, and that they will be in his presence forever. Let us pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for Adam, uh, for his example. Lord, uh, both positive and negative, we thank you for the second Adam who came to reverse the curse. We thank you for Jesus. I pray that our faith would be couched and just secured in him, and that he would be glorified in and through our lives, Jesus. I pray that we would realize that we need one another and, and that we would, we would run to you, God, in the midst of our sin. That we wouldn't wait until we f- have it figured out where we can fix ourselves, but instead we would come as the mess that we, as the mess that we always are. And we would, we would run to your arms and let you change and fix us. That we would set aside time and just be with you, long for your presence. Thank you that you, Jesus, save us. I pray, Lord, that you would put on all of our hearts, neighbors, friends, co-workers, and that we would be faithful to pray. God, forgive us for our prayerlessness. Forgive us for our apathy and our indifference for those who don't know you. God, I pray, please set a fire underneath our hearts. Help us to see how much this matters, that you gave your life for this, God. Help us to give our lives for this, that people might know you, that people might see you through us. We love you, Christ. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.